It is wonderful to see you and to be worshiping with you today at WPC. I do hope you'll join us next Sunday uh, for our second Lindsay Lecture as we welcome our visiting scholar, uh, the Reverend Dr. Brian Blunt, who is, uh, as, as uh, uh, Don told you, the president of Union Seminary and uh, is a New Testament scholar uh, who is an expert in, uh, with the book of Revelation particularly, which is what the focus of his uh, sermon and uh, the class will be about. Uh, particularly excited for this, as Dr. Blunt's been a mentor to me uh, in my ministry uh, and, and someone whose, whose scholarship I, I uh, lean on heavily in my own preaching and teaching. Um, I hope you'll join us for that. Um, we will be doing our early service next Sunday in the historic chapel as well, so that'll be a, another uh, special part of the, the Lindsay Lecture Day as, as well, so that'll be a, a, a nice thing to do. Uh, this morning, though, we begin a new sermon series for the month of October, except for next week, of course, uh, and we'll be spending a few weeks in the book of Job. Um, this month, we get to jump right into the whirlwind uh, to get a glimpse, uh, an experience of Job's saga and what we might glean for it together for our lives. I find that people either love or love the book of Job or try to stay as far away from it as possible possible. But I find when people take an interest in the book of Job, and myself included, it's often because they have found some way to identify with Job. They can relate to his circumstance because of tragedies in their own lives at various points. There's certainly nothing wrong with this way of reading Job. His words help give us words for the difficult and troubling times in our own lives. And at some point in our lives, we'll all walk a mile in Job's shoes. But this morning, I invite you to see this story from another perspective, from another vantage point, from that first of Job's wife, and then from his three friends, as they travel a long ways to visit him as he sits alone on an ash heap. I invite you to listen now to, with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the book of Job, starting with the very first verse. There once was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The lectionary skips ahead now to chapter 2, starting with the first verse. One day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him for no reason. Then Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that people have they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Let's pause here a minute. So first we meet Job. An upright man who lived in the mysterious land of Uz, this place that scholars can't seem to locate. 
this kind of lets us know that this is a, almost like a once upon a time beginning. Then after meeting Job, we are lifted into the heavens for a meeting of the divine council. God and the heavenly beings, as our Pew Bibles translates it. The Greek is, is uh, or sorry, the Hebrew rather, is, is quite literally the sons of God. And Satan is among them. The Satan from Job is far different from what our popular imagination is of who the devil is, or, or what we think of when we hear the, the name Satan. First, the word Satan in Hebrew simply means adversary. In Job, it's always met with a definite article. It's always the Satan, the Satan who is present, the adversary. And it's not a proper noun, it's a job title. He's a member of this divine council, and therefore he's subject to God's rule. And his role on the council is to test, to question. Think of the role of a prosecuting attorney and the role they they play in our Justice Department. That gives you a little glimpse into what this role is. This is a common understanding of how God works in the ancient world. There's an all-powerful God with a council of subordinates, including a tempter or a tester, a questioner. This tester has his sights set on Job. First, in, in chapter 1, he attacks all of Job's stuff. He attacks his livestock and then moves on to, uh, in his land, and then moves on to his family. And then, as we just heard in chapter 2, the adversary seeks to attack Job himself, trying to get him to turn against God, which, of course, Job will not do. Let's continue the story, starting at verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself and sat among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Let's pause here. I think it's important to note that Job's wife is the only woman to speak in the entire 42-chapter book, and she's only given this one little line. Throughout history, Job's wife has been vilified as an agent of Satan, working on his behalf to further tempt Job. But if you look a little closer, and I think certainly if you have ever served as a caregiver for a loved one who's suffering in pain, you might hear her one line a little differently. After all, she too has lost her children and all of her livelihood. She may not be in pain, covered in sores, but she is certainly suffering and grieving like Job. She says to her ailing husband, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. That word curse in Hebrew is barak, and it's actually the word to bless. But sometimes it can be translated as a euphemism for curse, and it depends on the context. But more often than not, it's a word that means bless. So some scholars claim that her words can be better understood positively. Bless instead of curse. For instance, she can be better understood in this way. Job, you have maintained your integrity through all of this. Now continue on. 
push on, press on, bless God, even though you might die. A little different take. Let's turn to the end of the story now, friends, where most of our focus will be this morning as Job's three friends come to be with him and sit alongside him, starting at verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They met together to go and uh, console and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At some point, many of us, and at one point or another, have picked up a ringing phone to be shaken to the core by a friend's cancer diagnosis. Or maybe you've asked a coworker about their day only to hear about their impending divorce. And the list of these, uh, what I call Job moments, these moments of utter tragedy and shock, they can go on and on. What shall we say in this moment, friends? What can we say? Surely we have to say something, right? Struggling to have the right words to say in the face of tragedy is so common in our world, in our experience of life. A good friend of mine said that in such encounters, you are so stunned that all you can do is listen and hang on for dear life. This is precisely the encounter that Job's friends stumbled upon one dark and ominous day in the land of Uz. Can you imagine Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar approaching the now dismal land of Uz? In the distance, they can still see smoke rising from Job's fields. They begin to smell the charred earth. As they get closer, they faintly see a man in suffering sitting on an ash heap. When they realize it's their old friend Job, their shock throws them into mourning. How can such a good man deserve this suffering? They begin to tear their clothes in frustration. They throw dust in the air to show their sympathy. And as Job turns his attention towards the friend, seeking their consolation, they join him on the ash heap, and they stay silent together for seven days. Unfortunately for Job, his friends just couldn't keep their silence. In fact, from chapters 3 to 37, the entire story is is a conversation between Job and his friends. Making friendship, I think, a major but also overlooked theme of the entire book. And this is no small talk over tea or nonchalant discussion about one's fantasy football team. Which, of course, mine is terrible, by the way. Essentially, what happens in these 35 chapters is that Job laments his present condition. He questions God and maintains that he does not deserve such suffering. On the other hand, his friends, 
contend that God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. So in their eyes, and they really are representing conventional wisdom at the time, Job must have done something wrong to deserve such suffering. So much for trying to comfort and console Job, right? When we get to the end of the story, Job's fortune is uh, restored twofold by God. And then God scolds Job's friends for making false assumptions about God and the way God works, basically proving them wrong. Like his wife, Job's friends have received a pretty bad reputation throughout history. To put it simply, they're portrayed in the story often as being the salt in Job's wounds, making a bad situation even worse. As I said earlier, the vast majority of Job consists, between, uh, consists of a conversation between he and his friends. So from content alone, the book of Job talks about friendship more than any other book in the Bible. So the question I have, is there, is there any redeeming quality about Job's friends? Do they help show us something, if anything, about what it means to be a good friend? Do they give us any biblical understanding of what friendship ought to look like? For one thing, it seems that we can learn from his friends what not to say to a friend in need, to the Jobs we meet in our lives. We can learn from their example that when you encounter someone in Job's shoes, that you know it may not be the time to try to rationalize why they are experiencing such an affliction. If anything, the book of Job shows us that this is something we do not know the answer to anyway. Rather, we can learn from the friend's experience that it is more important to listen than to speak in such situations. Now, while we may learn from Job's friends what not to say to someone in need, perhaps there's something we can learn from their actions. For one, the friend showed up to be with Job when he was most in need. And though their words may have ultimately caused some more harm than good, our text tells us that their intentions were good. They were to console and comfort Job. So not only did they show up when Job most needed it, they stayed by his side to the end. Through seven days of silence, through 30-some chapters of painful conversation, and through God's coming in a whirlwind, all by the side of a man who's covered in sores and boils, and whose breath, by his own admission, was repugnant to his wife. It's in there. He wasn't exactly an easy guy to be around at this time. So it seems to me, friends, that we might be able to learn something from his friend's continual presence with Job throughout his affliction. So often we worry in our relationships about saying the right thing to a friend who's facing difficult times. Job's friends show us that the simple presence, that just showing up, can be the most important act of friendship. In other words, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar illustrate for us that good friends show up and are there to listen when a friend is in need. You know, God has also shown us this kind of friendship throughout our story. We've seen God show up time and time again through walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, to delivering a people out of Egypt, to sending prophets and kings and judges, God's presence has been felt by Israel throughout the covenant history. 
No matter how far we've strayed from following God's will, God's presence always came near. God always showed up. Our best example of this, of course, friends, is when God sent God's own son into the world. God's word became flesh and lived among us. God came near in Christ as he healed the sick, taught of God's kingdom, and even giving his own life, suffering on the cross for our sins. Today we experience God's presence through the Holy Spirit in the church, and we particularly experience this through our uh, celebrating of the sacraments. It's in these moments where we're lifted into Christ's presence, as we're cleansed and claimed at the font, and as we're nourished and fed at, and brought together at God's table. Such experiences of God's nearness call us and prepare us so that we can be present with the Joves of our community and world, that we can show up to the pe- for the people most in need of a good friend, to be present during difficult times. We are called to be present with the Jobs in the world, and we are empowered to do so by our experience of the living God, that experience that we find together in community, particularly when our Lord gathers us at his table. So now as we prepare to be fed at our Lord's table and go out into the world, I invite you to try to see Job's face, to see Job's face in our community and world. Can you see Job's face in a friend who's experienced tragedy or abuse or loss? Can you see his face? Can you see Job's face in a lonely child who needs a mentor and an advocate? Can you see Job's face in a neighbor who lost their job? Can you see Job's face? Once you can see Job's face, ask yourself, how might God be calling you to be present with the Job's in our world and in our own lives? So, Friends, may we go. May we go and be good friends to Job. May we show up and sit on the ash heap with them. Be willing to be present, to listen and walk with them on their journey of healing, providing the hope of Christ, who indeed is coming, coming to make all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.